You are listening to the podcast Label Deep with Khalil Ismail and Om Zakir. Gardens beneath rivers flow And all I know is I love to So we're going to be reading, you're going to be reading essays from your book, Prejudice Bones in My Body. So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to select particular topics that I believe really, really, really have a pulse on the depth that, that's going on uh, in terms of the Muslim reality. Like, we, like the podcast is labeled deep. So we're getting into the heart of those things. Like, for example, we have labels like racism. We have um, labels like discrimination. Uh, we have la- labels like uh, cultural traditions. But what is really, really happening with that? And, 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 and in particular, I'm looking at the pain that is beneath those labels. I'm looking at the human reality. And sometimes in my essays, I will be very emotional, you know, and some of them will be more rational because it's kind of taking you through the, the trauma of my own heart. Because on the one hand, I have this part of me that's really, really rational and I'm trying to do what's right and, and be very diplomatic. But then I have this part where it's like, oh, heck no, I'm not, I'm done. <laughs> you know, I'm done. So you'll find that throughout is because, you know, and this is, and for me, I, it took a while for me to agree to do this book. And when I say agree, I mean with even within myself, because I was really scared to show that part of me because it's a vulnerable part. Even anger and frustration is vulnerability. And we like to, as Muslims, like to pretend, you know, we kind of do. I I heard like one person refer to it as the NPR voice. Well, everybody has that opinion. I mean, so we pretend that this, what I call emotional impotence, Mm -hmm. is what represents the Islamic experience, what represents adab, where the reality of the Islamic life is all of the emotions, happiness, sadness, self-reflection, frustration, and sometimes taking a risk that you could be contradicting yourself while you're trying to navigate your pain. And I did take that chance in saying, look, I'm just going to show a piece of my heart in this book. And so each essay is kind of taking you through my own journey. That is also the journey of many other people. Okay. So, um, by the way, this, uh, podcast is, is, uh, ran and powered by inspired nation, that's inspirednation.com. Uh, there will be many initiatives on that website, so stay tuned for that. Um, so basically, what I'm going to be doing is commenting, uh, giving my stories. Uh, we both grew up Muslim, almost on opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to growing up Muslim. So we both have perspectives. And so, you know, if there's something that resonates with me in the essay, then I will then give my commentary. So with that being said, let's go ahead and start. Um, your first essay. Let's see. Okay. Let's see how it goes. And this first essay is called "Prejudice Bones in My Body." And just to, and just to let everybody know, and that okay. is the basis of the book. But this essay is actually called "Prejudice Bones in My Body." Good, she said, so matter-of-factly that I was momentarily confused. Blinking, I held my phone's receiver as I processed this simple response that held little connection to what I had just said. It was months after the 9-11 attacks, and I had just shared with my friend my distress over Muslims being unjustly detained and imprisoned on charges of, quote, terrorism and injustice that affected mostly immigrant Muslims. Now they'll know how it feels, she said. I felt weak as the cruelty of her words took meaning. Like myself, 
my friend had repeatedly encountered the sober reality that dulled any lingering dreams of the, quote, universality of Islam. Muslims worldwide were, quote, brothers and sisters in Islam. We had been taught. Joined by a bond that transcended color, race, and ethnicity, and we'd believed it until we met those, quote, brothers and sisters. But my friend's hurt was deeper than mine. While I had grown up Muslim because my parents had accepted Islam the year I was born, my friend had accepted Islam after the tumultuous confusion of disbelief. Part of her inspiration for embracing the religion was its universal component, which was the antidote for the colorism and racism that had plagued her life since childhood. She had never imagined that while the universality of Islam was an authentic concept, the universal brotherhood of Islam was not. In that brief moment, as I held the phone, shocked at what she just said, I felt a host of emotions, disgust, anger, and helplessness. For years, my friend had been a mentor and confidant to me. I had admired her self-confidence, her remarkable intelligence, and her persevering strength. She would offer me a shoulder when I was despondent and a patient, attentive ear when I was distressed. And always it was her optimism, even in the face of adversity, that I had cherished most. But now, but we had lost friends along the way, she and I, some to disbelief, some to betrayal, and some to death. Good. Now they'll know how it feels. At the reminder of her words, I understood the source of my pain. Now I had lost her too. If I were rich, if I were rich, I proclaimed earnestly one day while chatting with my sister, I would give so much money to the poor. My sister nodded heartily in agreement. As we were in our early teens at the time, we were having a difficult time understanding all the quote, rich snobbery in the world. There was plenty of wealth, but somehow there were still starving children, homeless people, and so many who did not even have the small conveniences of life. And it hurt most that Muslims played a part in this injustice. In our very own hometown, my sister and I regularly witnessed the way affluent Muslims treated others and how we ourselves were treated time to time. People behaved as if our not being wealthy was something that affected not only our material lifestyle, but our personal character, our likability as well. And it did not escape us that this mistreatment was most pronounced by wealthy Muslims who did not share our quote, brown skin and black American status. People don't change overnight, someone interjected in response. My sister and I stopped talking and looked up to find our father walking toward us. We hadn't even realized he was in earshot. If you don't share what you have right now, he said, you won't share it when you have more. He explained, if you're not willing to let your sister wear her, your new shirt, the example touched on an argument my sister and I had just had earlier that day. I was upset with her for trying to wear my new clothes before I had a chance to then don't think anything's going to change when you have a lot of money. He paused. The only difference will be that you'll have a lot more that you're not willing to share. 
It has been more than 20 years since my father spoke these words, and still they stay with me. His simple insight incited within me a self-reflection that I had never engaged in. Before then, I had not even thought of myself as greedy or selfish. I had not imagined that those whose stinginess I resented so thoroughly were merely a mirror image of myself at the time. Yes, it's true. I realized that day in silent self-reproach. I was not generous with my new clothes. In fact, I was not particularly generous at all. I'd argue with my sister about, quote, my side of the room. I'd taunt my little brothers and sisters just for fun. I'd even neatly tuck away some prized treat for the sole purpose of making sure I'd have it later when no one else did. If I finished my chores early, oh, you better believe it. I'd jump into my cozy bed and enjoy the fact that my sister could not do the same. If I were rich, I would give so much money to the poor. My heartfelt proclamation returned to me as I settled under my covers for the night. And for some reason, they didn't seem so heartfelt anymore. It's not their fault that they're rich, someone had said to me once. Just like you can't blame someone for being poor, you can't blame someone for being rich. And these words gave me pause. So often I'd reflected pensively on the injustices inflicted on those who were underprivileged or poor. And certainly the injustices toward them were plenty. But I did not think of the injustices I may have inflicted upon those of privilege and wealth, even if my injustice would never reach them in any tangible fashion. But the truth is, I realized sadly one day, we are all guilty of injustice. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we judge each other harshly, paint sweeping generalizations of the quote other, and keep our distance from those we view as quote too different. Yet amazingly, we become frustrated and even perplexed by all the injustice in the world. Self-proclaimed prejudice-free. I don't have a prejudice bone in my body. I often hear my fellow Muslims say, with the same heartfelt earnestness that I proclaimed my generosity so many years ago. Now, when I hear these words that I'm sure I myself would have uttered on many an occasion, my heart falls into sadness and I grow pensive. Then we have no hope at all, I reflect. I cannot imagine how the Muslim Ummah, let alone the world at large, will ever work to end classism and racism and injustice itself if we do not openly and honestly acknowledge the magnitude of the job before us. Yes, so many of us eagerly proclaim our job is never done, but we somehow imagine this ever unfinished job is quote out there somewhere and not inside our own hearts and souls. Yet in truth, if there's any fight against injustice that is never done, it does not have roots in an elusive corrupt world. Corruption does not spring from the dirt of the earth. It sprouts from the dirt of our own souls. And like so many evils around us and within us, those of bigotry are continued most destructively by those who imagine they have within them no bigotry at all. Allah says what has been translated to me, and when it is said to them, make not mischief on the earth, they say, 
We are only peacemakers. Verily, they are the ones who make mischief, but they perceive it not. This is in Al-Baqarah, uh, Ayah 12. How then can a believer imagine himself free of such evil when Allah himself has described some evil as beyond the guilty one's perception? Is it that Allah himself has declared us pure from corruption? Or do we ascribe purity to ourselves? Yet Allah says what has been translated to me, so ascribe not purity to yourselves. He, Allah, knows best who fears Allah and keeps his duty to him. This is in Surah An-Najm, uh, Ayah 32. And the only way we can truly keep our duty to Allah is by constantly engaging in self-reflection, never feeling safe from any sin. For surely our righteous predecessors were known for their weeping and self-reproach and ever guarding themselves against evil. And no evil did they proclaim safety from. Even Prophet Ibrahim, Abraham, alayhi salam, prayed earnestly to Allah to protect him and his children from the grave sin of shirk, joining partners with Allah. In Surah to Ibrahim, Ayah 35, he says in a prayer what has been translated to me, and keep me and my sons away from worshiping idols. Who then are we in comparison to Allah's Khalil, his devoted friend? Who then are we to imagine freedom from a sin more easily committed than the shirk about which Ibrahim prayed? It is true that I detest classism, racism, colorism, and any other form of bigotry, for I myself have suffered many, many a time from these injustices. So I cannot imagine condoning them within myself. The Prophet ﷺ himself advised us to stay away from the evils of racism and nationalism when he said, leave it. It is rotten. This is in Bukhari and Muslim. But my despising the disgusting nature of these sins does not guarantee my safety from them. Just as my abhorring entering the hellfire does not grant me salvation from its torment. So yes, I detest the idea of having even a single prejudiced bone in my body, but that does not mean I am free from guilt. None of us are, even those who are frequent victims of prejudice. Good, now they'll know how it feels. Even now I shudder at my friend's words, Indeed, it is terrifying to witness a victim of prejudice finding comfort in the very injustice that caused her pain. But despite my shock and disappointment at these cruel words, I cannot help wondering why they truly affected me so. Today, I know it is because somehow, amidst the prejudiced bones in my own body, I can understand what she meant. No, I certainly do not share her sentiments, but I do share her heart, her human heart. And a human heart is never free from injustice. Yet our greatest calamity is in feeling that ours is. Allah. <clears throat> you know, I was listening to that and it's, it's crazy because it makes me, takes me back to the time of 9-11. And during the time of 9-11, I remember, I recall that day very vividly, actually. Um, and I recall having to go and get my sister my we were well, I was going to university in Maryland at the time and I remember thinking okay I remember walking into the room and seeing everybody looking at the television 
and I'm wondering like why in the world is everybody got um gathered around all these televisions you know like you know in the student union you have different televisions and I remember and then I remember seeing the thing and I remember what looking at it and oh my god and immediately thinking about myself Mm. immediately thinking about and then thinking about my sister my sister was going to school at the time and I was like I gotta go figure out where she is I gotta make sure she's safe and protected and hearing that is very interesting to me because you know I think at that time I was extremely optimistic and I still was blind to a lot of the differences between the immigrant community and the African American community I would say and I think that was probably for me I mean, I had sensed the first real time that I sensed a big difference between us, mm. you know, because I remember like people coming and talking about like in the massage, they would talk about like in our massage where we were, they're talking about all of a sudden now they want our help, you know, and that type of thing. And it was like, you know, we was like, and they was like, okay, because we had security detail and stuff like that. So it started coming to us. It's like, you know, we've been talking about X, Y, and Z for a while. Now they want our help. And, and me just kind of thinking, wow, because, you know, I grew up one of those people who, I always wanted to help unite the races and that type of thing. And I've been around multiple Muslims. I've went to multiple schools. Um, I'm a, I was amongst the Daisies. I was amongst the Persians and amongst the Arabs. Right. And I always wanted to unite it. And yes, I did feel it, but I didn't know how much I felt it until I started dealing with it later. You know what I'm saying? And so hearing her say that is so crazy because I think if I would have heard it at that time too, I probably would have had the same reaction you had. But now What's crazy is that my heart resonates with it so much more. I'm so much more sensitive to her sentiment now than I would have been then because of what I've seen today and what what I've been through even, you know, so that's that's really crazy that she picked up on that so fast. You know what I'm saying? So, like, why do you think that she picked up on that so fast? I think, I mean, in retrospect, she had more experience than I did. She was older than me. Like this is somebody who I would say when I was in um, middle school, like around 11, 12 years old, she was already in college um, dealing with, and she was at, uh, I know now when I think back to our, cause we became more closer when she was, you know, when I became older, right. but at the time when I was in middle school and I'm just still just trying to figure out, you know, how to walk through the halls without my scarf being snatched off. Right. She's actually was in a predominantly white university that was frequented that had the, the vast majority of the Muslims there were from the Arab and the um, Desi background. Right. And she was experiencing the things that I talk about later on in some of my essays where I was first introduced to this world of actual, actual blatant and open black contempt yeah. I had never seen it that level. Yeah. I saw some levels of it. Like I saw like people kind of treating us like, um, I don't know the word that I, I'm not sure the word that I'm looking for, but kind of this condescending, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. patronizing. Yeah. Uh, you guys don't know yeah. anything. Cause I remember one time, for example, I went, I was, um, uh, in, I was in my own masjid and there was a, um, a man from the Daisy background who had come to visit. I'd never seen him before. And he, there was on the wall when you <coughs> enter the the, Afri- the small African American uh, masjid that I was a part of at the time, it was Al Fatiha on the wall in Arabic when right. you enter. Mm-hmm. And so my sister and I were just standing in that lobby, just talking. He was coming in to ready to go to the brother section, and he doesn't know us, so he comes up to us and says, 
do you know bismillah i mean i'm saying i'm serious seriously i'm telling you that's how he talked to us slowly now keep in mind we're the americans here right english is our first language so i'm not even sure why he slowed down the english but he was like do you know bismillah and we weren't children we were we were young adults like we were clearly in high school you know age so I, my sister and I just looked at each other. We just cracked up laughing like, what's up with this guy? Like, why is he talking like this? But we were so young that it was just comedy to us. And, yeah. But he was serious. And he was like, he was pointing to the Arabic, Bismillah. And it was like, bro, what's up? You know what I'm saying? We, we're human. We speak English, you know? Right, 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 right. Yes, we know it. Right. Okay. And I forgot what he said after that, but some more stuff, but... She had gone through all of that, right. and she knew what that was because she was older than I was. And the, and the fact that ninety nine percent, well, not maybe even a hundred percent actually, but I would say f- from every experience that she had after she herself grew up and left her home, was in a predominantly white environment that the vast majority of the Muslims there were not African Americans, mm. and she witnessed that. And even because she was one of those high achievers yeah. who were who was who people would consider like the black token. Mm-hmm. You know, she was um, over outperforming the white, her white, white counterpart. She was outperforming the Desi and the Arab counterparts who were at the top of their class. Right. So she was dealing with that daily. Whereas by the time 9-11 happened, she had already gone through so much pain. Right, 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 right. That her, her pain had began to, the trauma she faced began to traumatize her. Yeah. Okay, so it was a continuation of what she was dealing with even before she was Muslim. You said she converted, right? Yes. How long? How long was she Muslim before, like, what you think? I think about? that she became Muslim, if I'm not mistaken, when she was probably like twelve or years old or thirteen. Okay. You know. Okay, so so, and then when you know when you when that statement happened, how old was she? I would think maybe 40. 40. Okay. okay. Or, so or she, maybe, okay. or if not 40, at least maybe 35 or something like okay. that. I, yeah. I don't know. I have to um, right. think back because we have a huge age difference. But she may have been, may have been like 35. I may yeah. have been like 25 or something. Okay. Okay. I have to think. But I don't remember. But it's basically I was in my, my 20s. Yeah. 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 Where she was probably in her mid 30s, you know, something like this. So right, she right, had right, a probably right. like a good 10, 15 years ahead of me. Ah, uh, okay. You know. Okay, so even in, from an Islamic standpoint, she had been even Muslim longer than you had been born. Oh, yeah. So, okay, okay. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> or at least at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, around yeah. it. Like, I'll put it like this. At the very least, yeah. she was Muslim since the time I was, when I was just coming into the world. Okay. Yes. So, so most of the time, like, when I, my upbringing um, was such that, you know, I, I came up and my, the first school I went to was like Claire Muhammad, which was more like Warthin community. Right. But then after that, most of my time was spent in um like one of either the Desi, one like the Desi community. Right. And I think that because of that and because I was young and you know, we tend to project what we are and how we think. And I was a very kind of fair thinking person. I was always thinking that I'm very big on equality and that type of thing. And people getting the right for their own voice. So I think my assumption was that everybody else had that general um, in- inclination. You know what I'm saying? So growing up, um, growing up there, I, I, I remember aggression such as I remember like they used to call us the downtown brothers. Um, 
when we would go play basketball on the Daisy Masjid, you know, and sometimes they would talk about what the downtown brothers would do. It's like, why are they separating? And we would ask, you know, we would, we would make note of it. We would laugh almost, right? Because, you know, we were amongst those people, right? But it was one of the other interesting things is that I think it was those, that group of people would, that also contributed to some of the African Americans who were with them, their contempt, I would say, for people in the world, the Muhammad community, right? Because they were, there's a lot of African Americans who were in that community. They, they, they learned from these people. That's how they learned their Islam, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times you were almost taught that your culture, you know, almost mostly all of your culture was haram, right? So if you saw any other Muslim, you know, dealing with any part of practicing any any part of their just regular culture as African American, then they would deviate off the path, right? So like I remember hearing. You know, things like, okay, you know, that particular community was barely Muslim. So we are back with Label Deep and we are discussing uh, the, the differences between the community, the, most, the various Muslim communities uh, that came up um, and how we framed and perceived them. So um, I want to go, I want to go to, I want to go back to kind of the differences of, of growing up in the Wardin community uh, versus growing up in the orthodox, um, the so-called orthodox Muslim community. And we're doing this first to kind of build the foundation for what'll, you know, for what'll come. Uh, because you have to kind of know how we got started to know where we end up concluding. So this, this is going to build, this podcast is going to build for a little while. And then we're going to come, come, come up with some conclusions and come up with maybe even some solutions. So, um, going back to that. So, (sighs) Did you really, really feel, um, at what point did you feel like you were being, did you ever actually feel you were being discriminated against by other Muslims as a young person growing up in that community? Um, I'm going to tell you about, you know, you know, some of the, uh, more detail, some of the things that we thought, but I want to know, like, you know, what did you experience growing up? Well, I mean, growing up, I went to public school, first of all, so I, my, 99% of my time was not even around Muslims. And the little bit of time that I did spend around Muslims was mainly with my own small community of African-American Muslims. And my glimpses of it were really just kind of like that, that situation where the brother coming in, you know, can you say Bismillah, that type of stuff. But when I did notice a difference when it was Eid time, and I would go to, because Eid, we would go out to, like, there was a, there's a masjid, Isna headquarters, not too far from where I lived. And so we sometimes would go out there. There was a definite different air mm. of, like, yeah. this kind of, of, of many of the people there. And they would be hyper watching us, like, if, how we dressed and how we, you know, uh, and, and make statements about, you know, you know, you you know you can't pray like that, and you know you can't do this. And and to be honest, in there to make it balanced, some of the things that they were telling us was correct. Like for example, I was praying in like short sleeves, my neck was showing, so that was correct. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the problem was it didn't necessarily stop there. You know, um, other comments may have been made where it was like, "Don't talk to them, don't deal with them," type attitude. And mm-hmm. those Muslims aren't real Muslims type thing. You, I would hear different things that made it clear that that's really how they believed. 
And they would talk about, for example, like how horrible we were and about listening to music and having no problem with it. But there was this culture, at least amongst the youth, where they that was their official position. But then they would be the ones climbing out of windows to go to parties, hanging out with guys. Whereas me, at least me and my small circle friends, now I, I'm definitely not going to speak on behalf of all the African-American <laughs> Muslims and yeah. Africa and Worthy Muhammad community or any other community. Yeah. But in my little tiny circle of friends, you, what you see is what you get. Yeah. You know, if we were talking to a guy, we talk, told our parents about it. Mm-hmm. And that guy would come over the house and, and they could learn about Islam. Our culture was not climbing out of windows. And going to parties in the middle of the night when our no. parents didn't know it. That's no. just not what we did, you know. And we were very, whatever things we were doing, and I would say this was the culture of my small circle of friends. Sure. It was on the up and up, as you would call it. And I, and, and my, my parents supported us in trying for where we were at that time. They were like, okay, you want to talk to a guy? He's going to have to come and learn about Islam. He's going to have to do this. Instead of operating on this fear, stay away from those people. They're, they're kafar. They're, no, they're like, well, yeah. if he's interested in you, he's interested in Islam. And if he's not interested in Islam, then he's not interested in you, you know? <laughs> so, but giving that chance. And so I would see that. Whereas on the, the official thing was, we don't listen to music. And then the type of music they listen to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. it was like, wow. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't believe music was haram, but I'm not listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's funny because, you know, growing up in the, the orthodoxy ho- household, um, I remember long, hour long conversations just about y'all's hijab, <laughs> just just about y'all being on the path. And it's so funny because back then it was just what we did. I didn't realize I didn't know. Like, I didn't know. Now that now I know that that stuff was really just kind of passed down from the teachers because they thought the teachers were, you know, the, the teachers started that mess. But we did that. And it was like, you know, so it gives you this air of, okay, we're going to cut you off. But in the meantime, while all that's going on, we sneaking around. You know what I'm saying? A lot, a lot of, there was a lot of people who were sneaking around. Like, you know, there was a school. Like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to name the school. People might be upset with me, but let's be real. I'm going to be real about this. Like, I remember like Safai, like my shit Safai in Baltimore, right? It was a school mm-hmm. there and it was my shit Al-Hak. And those were the orthodox, orth- super orthodox Muslim, mm-hmm. Muslim groups, right? But the issue is like people, we, we all in the group, young group, we knew who was sneaking around and mm-hmm. going and having boyfriend and mm-hmm. girlfriend and kissing and doing all that stuff and we listen to whatever we listen to the worst of me we love because the environment was such that it was because everything dunya is bad on you dunya is bad we just was like okay well when we got the opportunity i'm a you know i'm gonna go out and experiment with this stuff and i think um, it's interesting listening to you say what you say because you're like okay so we were allowed more leeway but then you ended up not going and having the same type of double life that a lot of the young people from the generation, from the, the orthodoxy generation had. And that's a very interesting thing. Do you think that that also happened? Was that, was that the the, major, the story of the majority? And maybe we need to ask the, the audience this when we discuss it. Do you think that that's the same story for most of the people in that community? Remember, in your now estimation? Now, I, the, I will say this. I'm going to preface my answer with this. My community was small. Yeah. And my community, as we'll see later in the book, and even some of the experiences that I had, does not represent the wider African American Muslim community under Imam Warthi Muhammad. Okay. Because just like any community, you have 
different cultures in each area, different okay. things happening, and everyone's not in agreement on even how to live their life, you know, because so there are some that were stricter than us. And then just like you were saying at these particular messages, some even were of the Muhammad communities were actually like that in we're different like cities. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay. So to be very fair, yeah, 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 you know, but yeah. although that wasn't the norm mm -hmm. with them. Yeah. Okay. To be clear, in my yeah. experience, even with traveling to different, that for, whereas the exception would be in a community like yours to have an upbringing like mine. The exception would be in the Emo Worthy Muhammad community to have okay. a community like that, but it okay. did exist. Okay. But from my recollection of the the um, the Muslims that I was around in my memory. Now, keep in mind, I was young. I left home. I left home when I was like. 17 yeah, years old yeah, and I yeah. never lived home, at home again. Yeah. You know, when I say left home, I meant to college. I didn't run away. Right, right, <laughs> I right, went right. to college and then after I, while I was in college, I got married and so on and so forth. So I never had the opportunity to come back and live at home is what I'm saying. But in my recollection, yes, it, it that was pretty much the experience. But, but I will say this as a disclaimer, some of us did fall into, so, some of us, Alhamdulillah yeah. protected me from that, yeah. but some of us did fall into Zenda. Some people did end up, you know, getting pregnant, yeah. but what, what it was not, it was something that was dealt with. Yeah. It's, it's the, probably the best way to say it. Okay. It wasn't something that was like, you're going to be disowned. And yeah. we're going to hide you from the rest mm -hmm. of the society. We're going to pretend like it didn't happen. You know, um, because I remember one thing um, the imam said in our community at that time. He said that, you know, we're going to caution you against committing zina. But once you do it and you fall into it, we're, we're just going to try to support you and the baby because the pain and the regret that you have is already mm -hmm. enough. It's not going to bother you anymore. <laughs> Subhanallah, that's deep. Because right now you yeah. just need yeah. the support. Yeah, yeah. You don't need us to come <clears throat> after you and, and and shame you. So because some sins, and I put this in even one of my, my book, the pain of the regret from the sin is mm -hmm. enough as a, of a punishment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to add anything yeah. else to that. Well, I mean, I, it was totally, I think that was definitely the opposite. You know, at least where I was, it was like, okay, if you even... If you even thought to have been in those situations, you you probably much pretty much is or you're gonna be cut off. You're gonna be cut off. It's like you know when we don't have that, we don't do the image. We're supposed to leave all of the doing. Like I said, we're gonna we're supposed to leave it all behind. Um, but going back to what um you, what you what you wrote about, um, I will say that like in my experience, I hang, I hung around a lot of Daisy, you know, and some Arab brothers, and they're still my friends to this day. You know what I'm saying? And because I had that experience, and I think I'm very fortunate to have that experience, you know, I can say that a lot of those those guys used to talk to me about how prejudiced their parents were. You know, I used to say, like, you know, you know, really, like, I mean, my, I remember stories like, you know, my parents sometimes ask me why I'm hanging out with people like you. You know what I'm saying? I remember that. I, I won't forget that, right? But they, and they, they envision themselves as being different in that way, you know? Um, but I also remember that, even from a behavioral standpoint, I talked about some of the stuff that we did. We weren't nearly as bad as a lot of they were. A lot of them were, like, and we used to say, like, man, man, they always, you know, it's so crazy because their parents are talking about us. But when they go out, and especially in public school, they do everything the public school kids do, and we weren't nearly that bad. So we would see these kids, and a lot is so funny because when they were going around, and a lot of them even were like fornicating. Um, to be real, they had black women who they were going after. They were, you know, non-Muslim black women who they were going after. But then when it was time to get married. When they was 25, 26, 27, and they go ahead and marry somebody within their culture, but they got all that stuff out. 
you know, and then I found out, you know, during that time that a lot of times their parents actually in- encouraged them to not marry, you know, now they wouldn't necessarily say you go out and fornicate, but they pretty much was like, look, do what you got to do. But don't, you know, you know, it's not time. You get your education and all of that stuff. And and I will have to say that there, in some of the community, and not all, by the way, but I did know, and, and this is even something I came across in my travels, and mm-hmm. that some of the, the segments of the non-practicing, and I will differentiate because this is not true for the, the Arab and Desi communities who yeah. are striving to practice Islam. Absolutely. But the ones who kind of still want to hold on to certain cultural things while giving up the Salah or giving up the belief in Allah and all of that, you know, or belief in the foundations of Islam, excuse me, because most of them believe in Allah, they still want to have that image, specifically with the women, of this purity. And with the boys, just kind of boys will be boys. And so there's a lot of what, what is well known, the hymen repair that's going on, even for people who don't, they don't pray. And not because the girls themselves even really have are sold on it. They just know that the parental pressure and the cultural pressure of maintaining that image of virginity mm-hmm. is so strong that we have to lie about our past to get married. And, and sometimes to somebody I don't even want to when I care about someone else. So there was a huge difference like in that, like in the sense of the community I come from. And I don't know of any exceptions, even for the people who fell into mistakes. May Allah yeah. have mercy on, I'm sorry, fell into zina. Yeah. We all fall into mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those who fell into zina, there was no secret of hiding it from their, their potential spouse. Mm. There was no, mm. I'm going to try to go. I had never in my life heard about the hymen mm. repair thing until I came into contact with the Arab and Daisy Muslims mm. who were living this double life Mm. where it was pretty much understood even when I interacted with some parents before who, who, when I was doing certain youth projects where the parents made it clear to me in no uncertainty of terms Mm -hmm. that you keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Let me worry about my child. Yeah. And it was a threat. And I even had very real physical threats for my safety in life Mm. from that, that camp when there was a, there was this attitude that if you're going to mess around with our image, and I'm sitting here just talking to them to be honest about what's happening so that they're aware of what's going on with their child or what's happening. And they're basically saying, you don't say a word about this. And if you do, I'm going to make your life hell. It was that deep to the point where I reached the point where I learned a very, very bitter lesson as a, even as a, someone who mentors youth and works with as, as a teacher that I can't always talk to the parents. Right. Sometimes right. you just have to deal with the child themselves and just treat them as they are to Allah because I was teaching high school and middle school and working with youth who are teenagers who are adults to Allah anyway, right. that I learned that in certain cultures, unless you have already developed a rapport personally with those parents, they see you as disrespecting them. Mm. Not only because you know, but because you're nothing to them. Mm. So how mm. dare you have the audacity to come and give me advice on my child? Mm. Yeah. I would rather accept mm. that my daughter is out there committing zina yeah. with whoever than for anyone to know about it, right. than for her to seek repentance. Right. As long as we can sew her up before she gets married, we're good. And right. you keep your, you keep out of it and mind your business and we'll mind ours. Right. Mm. I, that was a shock. <laughs> I never in my life. Yeah. Never yeah. experienced yeah. something like that. And, and, and I'm going to say, and I will be honest and say this, mm. in any email or the Muhammad community <laughs> I ever visited, <laughs> that there was not that attitude of, right. if you 
if anyone even knows, whoever knows, even if you're just trying to help, yeah. is going to be put in harm's way. No. I mean, nobody's angels. Everybody has mistakes, you know, but that wasn't a part of our culture. And then later on in my book uh, and, in, and in the podcast, I will discuss some of the challenges of even amongst African-Americans right. to be balanced. Right. But so that people don't think I'm just like, oh, you know, yeah. but because we as African-Americans have struggles too, but each culture has a different manifestation yeah. of, um, of dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Because every single human society has a level of dysfunction. Right. And that's why Allah tells us we're the, the whole entire world of Muslims is about uh, one ummah because we're each puzzle pieces. Yeah. When we abandon each other, we lose out on benefiting from the other. Right, right, right. And we become extremists, so to speak, in the social sense, in yeah. our own cultural dysfunction. Right. right, where, right. While we're focusing on the dysfunction of someone else. And that's what I mainly saw with the Arab and Desi community. And I would say that... A, a lot of the dysfunction that was happening um, to a lesser extent than, than even the, Af- the Arab and Desi um, communities. We were honest about it, though. Yeah. We dealt with it. We had yeah, discussions yeah. about it. Yeah, we discussed yeah. in, a, yeah. in the community. We discussed the problem of people running around with boyfriends. We discussed it openly. Yeah. You know, it w- and it wasn't to say it was okay. We weren't okay with it right. as a community. But we were more honest about what we were dealing with, whereas th- that particular culture that I came in contact with later, yeah. mostly through college, was yeah. one of, you can openly sin, yeah. but the rule is, let's just pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. You know, unless it was someone else's culture. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because that makes me think about why it makes sense then why they were so critical of us. Why they were so critical of us because they were running from themselves. And really, you know, they were in, in a lot of times more compromised situations because the fact that you're, whenever you're confronting a truth or acknowledging a truth, it means you're still trying and striving. You know, at the point that you're denying a truth, that means you're really in more trouble. So it makes sense then that they will come to us and be like, okay, well, you know, it was almost like we're like charity cases and we're going to go and help. But that was just kind of covering some of the compromises that were being made in their community. So getting back to what you talked about in your essay, again, we're going to go back to that um, that statement that the sister made. Um, and I want to relate it to now um, because it's obvious that that sister probably or, you know, was had an orientation within those communities. And a lot of convert Muslims, because you can't you can't control where you become Muslim and you can't control, you know, a lot. A lot chooses that test for you. Right. So in that you can't control that, you know, she came and she has a lot of pain. So now we have this sentiment that there's some people amongst African-Americans who are like, you we don't need to talk about their troubles. We just need to get ourselves together. If we don't talk about we don't need to talk. We don't really really need to, you know, really discuss the racism that much. And I disagree with that because I feel like that's leaving a group of African, even leaving a group of African-American Muslims behind who just happen to have that test like the sister who you mentioned in the essay. So what do you think about this, this, this concept that we, you know, that it's almost shows weakness if we discuss the racism of those connected to us as Muslim brothers and sisters who, who are not our particular ethnicity? I'll say this to be full disclosure, honesty. I've said that before. Yeah. You know, I remember saying that before in different instances uh, where I was like, we need to stop worrying about them. You know, we need to start, we need to focus on ourselves because, you know, 
they're not going to accept you. And I was actually repeating something that I heard, you know, in the community I grew up in. And I would say that in the one hand, I do get what they're saying mm-hmm. personally mm-hmm. on an emotional level. Right. Because it is easier to feel that way when you're trying to cope and also when Allah has given you the privilege as an African-American to have certain alternatives in the qadr that Allah has put inside in your life. What what is a misconception amongst a lot of African-Americans is that African-Americans run and seek out to right. be accepted in these groups right. and then are rejected. Right. Most of us are happen to be living in areas where that's the closest masjid. <laughs> or that's who Allah, in his infinite wisdom, mm-hmm. tied us to it with our friendships and all of that before we even knew what we were getting into. Right. Or like prison, like a lot of prison chaplains are taught by these communities. Like a lot of the prison chaplains, for example, are taught by So they come out of prison and then they're, they're recommended to these particular massages. So it's not as easy as yes. what they're saying. So go ahead. And, and again, you're giving people advice and you have nothing for them. Mm-hmm. You're saying this, but my question, even to myself, when I think back to when I was saying that, I have to be honest and say I was in pain. Yeah. And it was easier to just say, stop worrying about them yeah. than to accept that this is a this is a problem that Allah has obligated you to address. Right, right, right. right because right. Allah said he made us nations and tribes so that we would know each other. Okay? So you don't have an op- option if you yeah. believe in Allah and the Quran, right. except to deal with this. Now, right. we need safe spaces. Yeah. Because <laughs> we can't deal with this stuff 24-7. No. <laughs> yeah, okay? Yeah. And I know that now because I would say that for emotional health, if you find a masjid, I will say this as an African-American, if you're converting to Islam, if you find an African-American masjid that is actually um, meeting your needs on all of the levels, and this would go for any masjid, whether it's Arab, Pakistani, as long as they're meeting your spiritual needs, it's fine. So if you have the option, and most people don't, we don't have that kind of luxury. But if you do, I would say if all other things are equal, meaning you're able to learn Quran, you're able to learn Salah, and no particular masjid is is going against the fundamentals of Islam, I would say for your long-term psychological and emotional health and the health of your children, Mm -hmm. go to the African-American masjids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would say that for African-Americans, I can't speak for other Latinas and and white Americans. I'll let them give their own advice for that. But my personal opinion because of, and I do talk about that later in my other essays, Mm -hmm. the emotional and psychological and mental breakdowns that are happening to many African-Americans who were exposed to that. However, going back to your question, if I were to respond to it in one sentence, you do not have that right. Mm, yeah. You do not have that right. You do not have the right to tell someone to not worry about something that is their daily reality. It is no different. Mm. It is no different, but on a different scale, mm-hmm. to tell uh, social justice activists who are who are fighting against racism to stop worrying about white people. Right. Right. Because just as the white power structure is the one that governs over 90% of our practical life, okay, and legal life in the United States of America, over 90% of the voices that Mm. are given privilege and and power, and even from the media, are the Arab and the Daisy communities. And let's be real, specifically with the Arabs, you're going to most likely find that the vast majority of those masajid, if you get nothing else, you can Mm. get proper Arabic and Quran in many times quicker than you can get it in African-American communities. So if you value learning your your faith 
and you value that over the color of your skin, then your only right is to tell people to go what it go where is best for your soul at any given moment. And that's going to change. Yeah. When it's time to learn Arabic, it may be one of those the masjids that may be emotionally traumatic. But when it's time to chill, yeah. I would say drive one hour away and deal with the African Americans. <laughs> I, I would say that. No, I mean I agree. I agree with you. I, I totally agree with you. And I think and my my thought really is that it's, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Like I agree that we don't look to them to to change or save our reality, but at the same time, we also acknowledge the truth of our connection. Like the bottom line is that we are all Muslim. You know, and we are, you know, the bottom line is, for example, Allah has commanded that the Muslims say salam to each other, no matter what. Like, we don't, okay, because they're not, a, you know, they're, they're this or they're that, or even what they do to us, we say salam as long as, you know, now, obviously, on an individual basis, if you know someone is harming or oppressing, that's a different story. But, you know what I'm saying? So, it's like, I, I, I like you, I get the sentiment of what people are saying. And to a certain extent, I think that we should put more energy into building on our own. But at the same time, if we're going to be fair, we also have to make sure that we are not dismissing the people who have no choice, have no choice but to deal with this and because and to deal with this particular thing, because there isn't anything around them and they happen to be Muslim or let's be real. Not every African-American is accepted within his own community or within her own community. And so if we're really about real about that. Yeah, I was just then, about then to what say that. we want is for every soul to be like you said, like you said, we want every soul to be taken care of and we want that the best for them in that way. Yeah, and I agree with that. I would say yeah. that that's what I was about to say yeah, because yeah. we're all human beings yeah, at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And the African American community that you're a part of, sometimes the only thing you share with them is the color of your skin. Yeah. And that in itself is a sign from a law. Right. He's testing you with that, mm -hmm. not because you don't have racial pride or you're not up to your culture. No, he's putting that reality, and this is my point of view, yeah. in the the, the, re, the life of believers to remind him and remind uh, her or all of us of la ilaha illallah, yeah. because he will not leave us like this. And I believe that one thing that is an exceptional case for the practical reality of the African-American people in the United States of America, and this is different from people who are, come from African countries, of, yeah. and they come from dark skin. I'm sorry, they come from areas that are predominantly Muslim and they have dark skin, is that Allah has cut us off from our lineage yeah, yeah, yeah. in such a way, and when I say Allah, mm -hmm. and I say this, and what I mean that is through Qadr, yeah. in such a way that the only way back to who we really are is to turn to him first. Yeah. Okay. We can connect if we want to, but we, but well, as much yeah. as we try to do that, we're not only African. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we're Native American. We're white. All of this is running through our blood. That's right. And so whether or not we want to respond to the racism by denying who Allah created us to be holistically yeah. or not, Allah will keep reminding you of that. And I believe that he puts in our culture. Yeah. Something very specific that doesn't exist in others. We're able to see the pain and the harms of the division. Right. So we can try it. Right. 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 But it doesn't work so well very long for right. African Americans. First of all, we can't get ourselves together enough to work together. <laughs> okay. And so Allah is bringing us a sign that you are going to have to unite on la ilaha illallah. Otherwise, you're not going to be going to see any any any. Um, yeah. fruition and i believe on another level it exists in other cultures too yeah. but they have the centuries of uh cultural practices and stuff like that so even though they may be 
divided in, in many, many serious things, they may have the family protection and the money, yeah, yeah, even yeah. though a lot of it is dysfunctional and abusive and harmful. Right. They still, like, for example, many of them, ex- with the exception of those who are brave enough to escape uh, abusive situations, the vast majority of them are, don't worry about what, like, if they get a divorce, where I'm going to live. Right. You know, am I going to be homeless? And I would say the only exception are those people who made a choice, whether it was abusive or just emotionally traumatic, to remain in that. And they make that brave decision to cut themselves off from that sustenance, so to speak, and to say, I'm going to stand on my own two feet. Right. Right. But but African-Americans in the United States of America, we don't have that option many times. Yeah. (laughs) That makes sense. And, you know... um, the, the funny thing about that, and it's amazing how law equalizes our tests. Um, I don't think people realize that um, having worldly unity is one of the biggest tests that you can have. Because if you had worldly unity in the wrong thing, then you're all going, you can all risk going to the fire. You can be unified and going to the fire. we got to remember that we're going to stand behind and around the people who we um, were with. So if our worldly unity isn't a group of people that were suppressive, you know, or into the downtrodden or took advantage of their privilege, did something that the law does not like, then what is what was the unity for? So interestingly enough, people like to talk about our inability to be unified, but really it's an it's 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 almost like we have a opportunity to be people who stand up for the unifying on standing up for the truth. That's why I started this particular project, Prejudice Bones in My Body, is because I wanted to start off the book by acknowledging we all have something in us. Now, and I'm going to differentiate this from the popular definition of racism, although sometimes I do use that interchangeably, unhealthy prejudice and racism, but I do acknowledge that racism as a power structure is different from unhealthy prejudice. But I believe that when we start off, when we're dealing with Muslims, uh, Muslim in- issues, intra-Muslim issues, the safest thing, because remember, our goal as Muslims is not to dismantle white supremacy or to, to get all the goods and gold on earth that's equal to everyone else. It's to go to paradise and please the law. And if we're not coming from that perspective, all of your anti-racism work, all of your social work, it's not really going to see the, the, the sweetest taste of the fruit of this world or what can be in the hereafter doesn't mean we won't see it. I'm saying that work won't see it because you're missing the point. There will always be a differentiation of wealth and power. And as long as certain people are in charge, there will always be oppressors and stuff like that. Doesn't mean we just roll over and accept it, but you, it's a reminder from a law that you have to remember that your goal is something bigger than that. And if we can start off by saying, black, white, blue, purple, we're all going on Yom Qiyamah alone. And if we want to lie to ourselves, whether we're Arab, Desi, African-American, white, Latina, whatever, Indonesian, whatever you are, and say, I have not one prejudiced bone in my body. I have not one thing in my heart against anyone else. This is dishonesty because what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed us, even with Prophet Ibrahim, and that's why I mentioned that dua, it hit my heart, subhanAllah, when I was reading the Quran. Like, here is a, a Khalil, a close beloved friend of Allah, one of the best prophets who ever existed. And what is he praying for? Protection from shirk. From, and then he specifically mentions the worshiping of idols. He doesn't just say, protect me from shirk. He says, from worshiping asnaad. 
Like, mm-hmm. and so if this is the biggest shirk, greater than than any anything disease in our heart that we can have, whether it's racism or or kibbutz or all of this, and he's fearful for his soul. Right. Okay. Who are we? Right. Because it's become the new in style thing to claim that either you know you're on the side of the problem or you're on the side of the solution, and and there's and there's never any in between. Right. But the reality is, is if that's a true statement, it only exists at moments in your in your reality within yourself. Meaning, one day and one moment I'm on part of the problem, and one day one moment I'm a part of the solution. It's called you had enough. Right. And if we cannot start with that, and I don't mean, and again, remember my book is only dealing with intra-Muslim problems. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not dealing with the wider problem of the white, you know, mm-hmm. supremacy directly. It does mm-hmm. come into play as we see later on. Right. We're dealing with some uh, current uh, social issues, but that is not when we're when we open the Quran. The goal is not to Allah is giving you the tools to how to dismantle white supremacy. He's giving you the tools on how to dismantle the diseases in your heart that can destroy you. Right. And then by doing that, it gives you the tools to fight against to the best of your ability, all the doom out in the society to the best of your ability. And as far as he decrees, right. because he lets you know, leave them. I'm going to give them a lot right. in this world. Right. So don't stress over it. Right. You're going to hear from them many things. And I think that if we really, really want to understand a roadmap of, of dealing with the issues today, we have to turn back to the Quran. And the Quran starts off by telling us that the, he, in these, these ayat that I read were the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, which is the second surah in the Quran after Al-Fatiha, mm-hmm. telling us of people who they say, they, they think they're doing good, they're right. not, they, but they don't even, yani la yash'arun. Yani there's no, like the Arabic is like saying, like asharu is like if I feel something, like if right. I feel pain, asharu be alam, like I feel some pain. Right. Like they don't even feel it. Right. They're not lying. Right. 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 They don't even feel within themselves that they're doing evil. But what does Allah tell us to do? Have taqwa. You know, constantly work on yourself. We all have to do this. And this is a big problem today. Oh, I'm not like that. We do this all the time. I don't have, I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. I don't have any hasid. I don't mean anything. I'm not, this is what we do. But in doing that, we're opening up the door to being uh, most guilty of that. And as I mentioned in one of my books is that whenever we say that we would never commit a sin. Mm-hmm. You're opening the door to, to, to wide open for you to commit it because if you were to come close to it, you wouldn't even perceive it because you don't even register that as possible. Right. So prejudice bones in my body is a representation of the self-honesty starting with myself because I struggle. Right. I'm going to be honest. I struggle. <laughs> Today, I understand where that sister's coming from. I will fight that. Right. In my angry moments, yeah. I've never reached, inshallah, the point where I felt good. Yeah. But I can feel like I felt that feeling I have felt. Now, don't leave me alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. You, you, and I talk about that later on. Yeah. You're now seeing the Muslim ban, so you want everybody to come together. Yeah. But when, 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 when it was time for African Americans to speak against the, the mass incarceration, right. when it's time for us to speak about the widespread racism, racism in the Muslim community, even when it was time to stand up for halal marriage, right. you're nowhere to be found. 
In fact, you're on the opposite side, tearing down people yeah, yeah. who are just trying to obey a law right. and outing them if they don't do what the, the, the white power system says. But all of a sudden, when that same system that you say that everybody has to accept mm. when it comes to the way they incarcerate because we're just criminals, right. yeah. what the, 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 the way that they govern marriage because, oh, monogamy is important. Right. Now, all of a sudden, we're supposed to go and disobey the laws of the land, go against the president of the United States risk our lives and stand up and protest so that your cousins and everybody can come to the United States of America. And I've, I, and the prejudice bones in my body, they get activated a little bit. <laughs> they get activated as a little bit. And yeah. I, and I mean, I, not as they should, but as, as it's the human as, nature. It's human nature Cause I'm like, now yeah, that's when I, I yeah. yeah, that's yeah, when I feel the pathway to what she's saying. I've yeah. never felt, alhamdulillah, Allah has protected me so far. And I yeah. pray he doesn't test me with that, that I never felt good. I, yeah. that, that happens. I, it pains me. Yeah. But it does annoy me right, right. that after I decide, okay, you literally are basically saying to me, because I'm not really a Muslim to you. Right, 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 right. But then when you're in trouble, <laughs> we have to use the, the resources that we barely have to come and save you. Yeah. I have a problem with that. Yeah. You know, and I want to talk about that. Yeah. But at the same time, I acknowledge that there are black um, immigrants coming here who are affected, you know, from different countries who are from African countries. So it's not only Arab and Daisy, but I'm saying. Yeah, and some of them actually are very similar to Arab and Daisy and how they deal with us, too. Well, so. that's true. Yeah, I talk about that <laughs> in my next one, too. But I'm saying that there's a very, for those who are honest and any honest one who I've ever met in my life, from whether it was a scholar or a layperson, whether it was a friend or just somebody I met in the masjid, they acknowledge this racism in the, their communities mm-hmm. and in their cultures. But for you to now come in and now you try to govern my life and tell me what's haram and halal based on legitimate difference of opinion. And then also you tell me that I have to call my congressman (laughs) because you might have your life disrupted. It activates the prejudice bones in my body. And we'll be talking more about that later because that's a whole different topic. But I did want to start off and say this is Jihad Enough. And every essay in my book doesn't necessarily represent where I am right now. Sure. It represents where I was at the time I wrote it. Right. So when when did you write this? This I wrote, I would say probably, uh, I think I was in Saudi Arabia at that time. Yeah, you were in Saudi Arabia. I think I was living in Saudi Arabia. So I think that this was written, so it could have been around maybe 2007 or something oh, like that. Okay. Maybe wow. 2008. It, it could have been 2000. I mean, I'll put it like this. It was between the year. It could. It was 2005 and 2013. Okay. I so, would say that. Okay. So in our Facebook discussion, we're going to discuss the differences between where you are then oh. and where you are now. <laughs> That's a so, whole separate show. <laughs> okay. We're going right. to um, wrap it up at this point. Again, you're listening to Label Deep, Power by Inspire Nation. And I am Khalil Ismail here with Om Zakia. And we'll talk to you next time. Assalamualaikum. In my experience, I've learned that two people can go through the same ordeal and perceive it differently. I have friends who live in Saudi Arabia to this day and love it, while other friends have left sick and traumatized, sensitive to the constant reminder that so many Arabs see them as less. If both are black and we claim to be fighting for black equality, whose account should we choose as more accurate? And if we dismiss one, what is the basis for that decision? The Qur'an states that mankind is in loss, with the exception of the faithful and the righteous, and those who join together in the mutual teachings of truth and perseverance. 
Suratul Asr is one of the shortest yet most powerful surahs in all of scripture. It tells me that the only way not to be lost, lost in our own trauma, lost in our flawed perceptions, lost in our pain, and lost in our privilege, is to first have faith that Allah knows that we know not. So have faith in his communications and what he defines as right, even over our own opinions and feelings. That means be in a constant state of acquainting ourselves with the law's communications. This is the hardest for the privileged because there's something to gain in not seeing the truth of those who have less than them. And it becomes harder for the traumatized when they see and constantly feel erasure at the hands of the ones who have more. So Allah gives the deterrent to mutually consult each other in truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. But when people are held back and suppressed from telling their truth, eventually they break and it comes out in unhealthy ways like the statement, now they'll know how it feels. This is KI's last word and you're listening to Label Deep Podcast with Um Zakia. With a little baby girl who was buried alive, rise from the dirt to the palaces of light in the gardens, in the gardens, in the gardens, in the gardens. The victim of faith no longer be ashamed. May have got a body, but a soul he couldn't claim. For the gardens, for the gardens, for the gardens, for the gardens. The lower class citizens, murdered who were innocent. The essay you heard was authored by Om Zakia from the book Prejudice Bones in My Body. You can find Prejudice Bones in My Body at uzauthor.com. All music was composed and performed by Khalil Ismail. You can find Khalil Ismail's music at khalilismail.com. That's K-H-A-L-I-L-I-S-M-A-I-L.com. Join us for our live version of Label Deep podcast, February 24th, when we delve into the issues regarding prejudice and racism in the Muslim community. That's February 24th, 6 p.m. in Baltimore, Maryland, at Catonsville Community College. 